Good morning. It is great to be together with you. Turn with me to the book of 1 John as you're turning there. First, I want to thank you for your really great participation in experiencing God. The studies are going wonderfully. We're hearing back testimonies and reports and thanksgivings and praises to God. And I'm getting some great conversations with folks as they're working through some uh, issues in their own personal lives as a result of this. And it's been a a great joy for us. Uh, Those of you who are leaders, if you'll look in your inbox, in your email, this afternoon around 1, I'll have an update out for you about some things that we need to take care of for this evening. So if you'll look out for that, that would be great. And uh, let me know that you receive that when you get it. Drop a little... Uh, email back to me. I'm going to ask specifically for your prayer in a particular area. Tomorrow morning, uh, I will be speaking at the Martin Luther King Jr. Day prayer breakfast that will be held at 6.30 a.m. at City Hall. And I want to give you a little background on that and uh, particularly ask for your prayer in a couple of areas. Um, A few years ago, the ministry made up primarily of black pastors uh, called the Citywide Revival and Evangelistic Crusade invited me to come and be a part of their meetings. They reached out to me in a desire to build bridges across cultures and communities and I accepted that invitation and began working with them and communicating and fellowshipping and then getting to know them. And about a year ago, we had a conversation. I've given you a little piece of that conversation. I want to repeat it to you again uh, with a little more fullness. We had a conversation in one of our meetings as we were preparing a gospel community church to do an outreach, as they're doing again tomorrow, uh, with the afternoon events. Uh, There's going to be about a 1,000 people down at the convention center for the afternoon lunch after the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Parade. And Gospel Community Church will be providing a 1,000 hot dogs and bags of chips and cold drinks and cookies, uh, New Testaments and gospel tracts with some information about Gospel Community Church. We'll be actually stationed there in the convention center in the hall where the afternoon meeting takes place. And it's a great outreach really so thankful to Max Fresh Market who's donated those materials and Gospel Community Church who are distributing and sharing God's love through those simple gifts. We were having a conversation about that and so I gathered with some of the black ministers from the Alexandria area and they invited me to a particular meeting one night uh, late one evening and we had a time that we just kind of talked, uh, just an open dialogue and I wanted to share with you a little bit of that dialogue and let you know why I think building bridges across cultures and communities through Christ is so important. Um, I sat with these men. Most of them were over 60, uh, and, and I would say almost the majority over 70. So their lives and their growing up was very different from mine, and so I kind of jokingly said, guys, um, it's probably real obvious to y'all that I am both young and white. And therefore, my understanding of the appreciation of Martin Luther King Jr. is very, very small. In fact, his Have a Dream speech, which was given in August of 1963, 
was given just about a month shy of my first birthday. And so for me, the understanding of why he was such an important individual is it's not real present in my mind. I understand some cultural things, but tell me from your personal experience why he is such an important figure to the black community and why Americans as a whole should celebrate him and what is the draw for you. And so we had a lot of conversation at that point, very, very good, but one particular conversation really stuck out at me and I wanted to share it with you because I think taking it home will help you maybe build a bridge over to a culture that that you and I do not fully understand. One of the men who was about 78 years old, if my memory is correct, grew up in Jefferson Parish in one of the very rough areas there. He recounted some of his story to me, which was mind-boggling, by the way. And He did so without bitterness. There was not a, there was not a dark edge on it. It was a very sad very honest assessment of his growing up. But then he told me this, and it has settled in my heart and will not leave. He said, where I grew up, everything that was told to me as a young black boy was that I was subhuman. All of my environment taught me that. All of the things I was exposed to taught me that. And everything that I had ever had given to me about my worth said to me that I was subhuman. Now, before you think that that's a crazy thought, there is a group of white supremacists in Louisiana who still have a website that says that. All you got to do is go look it up. They are not far from here. And so it wasn't an unheard of idea. It's been around a while. And he said, here's what happened, Bart. I started to believe it. I became convinced that black people were subhuman and I was subhuman. And Martin Luther King Jr., through his messages, was the first man to ever tell me that because God created me, I was fully human. Just as human as any other human being. That's why Dr. King is important to me, because he convinced me of a fundamental truth of my humanity. Now, I can't say anything except at that point I wept as I listened to this man bare his soul. And it made me understand the importance of building bridges across cultures and communities. And that's the reason that I'll be speaking tomorrow morning at the prayer breakfast. Because I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only real way, the only true way for man to be right with God and for man to be right with man. And so the message that I'm taking tomorrow morning is the message of the gospel.
So I need two things from you. I need your earnest prayers today. I'm not ready. I've been working on getting ready, but I'm not ready. And second, I think it'd be beautiful if the meeting looked like salt and pepper tomorrow morning. If folks from Kingsville said, I'll get up and I'll show up at 6.30 for the prayer breakfast in support of a desire that we have as a gospel community to build bridges across cultures and communities and to convey our love for our neighbors. And so I want to encourage you to come out and show up at 6.30. There will be a light breakfast served. Then we'll have a time together. Some of it will be culturally unusual to you. And so maybe experiencing that would be something new to you. But I want to invite you to come and help us build bridges across cultures and communities because I believe that the Lord is glorified. I believe he's honored when there is a unity among believers across all cultural and community and racial barriers. So join us. Let's get together then. Pray for me. All right. Jump in First John with me. I've entitled this, Pride, the Enemy of God-Centered Living. This past week's study was about that. And really what I want to do is give you some study material, some contemplation material to deal with this week's lesson that we just finished in Experiencing God about a God-centered life, next week's lesson about God pursuing a love relationship, and a few weeks later, the lesson about crisis of belief. I think some of, all three of those lessons will be contained in what we cover today. Several years ago, I was doing some study in 1 John. I don't know what took me there. I think it may have just been reading through the Bible and that I had gotten to 1 John and kind of parked there a little bit. Or maybe it was some other things that I was preparing or personally struggling with. I Honestly, I can't remember. But I camped here for a while, and I began struggling with the relationship of the beginning of verse 16 with the end of verse 16. Let me explain. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 16 for a moment. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I, I was really struggling through, how, what is the relationship between lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and this thing called pride? It didn't seem to follow. It seemed to be what, what folks call a non-sequitur. It, just, it didn't seem to follow. I thought, is, is pride being introduced as a whole other issue here? And so I began to contemplate that, and then I was contemplating one other issue, and that was, how does verse 15 relate to verse 16? Let's look at verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So how does this love of the Father address this issue of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. And how does this boastful pride of life tie itself to the idea of the lust of the flesh and of the eyes? So let's kind of jump in. Number one, the pull. The pull. 
What is being spoken of here is lust. Not very often in the New Testament is the word that is used for lust here ever used in a very positive light. Most of the time, it's used in a negative light. In one realm, in the realm of coveting stuff, in the other realm, in the realm of sexual desire that is sinful. Those are the two ways that it's typically used in the negative. And so when we walk through and we hear the word lust, that's what is meant here. It is covetousness of stuff or desire that is in that realm that is sensual. What the Bible does is it condemns that, but it also talks about the power of its pull. Now, there's a power of a pull that you live with every day called gravity, right? It's just here. It's all the time. It's just constant. Nobody goes around saying, well, I'm glad the gravity's kind of light today. My scale shows a different number because of it. It doesn't. You live with that pull all the time. It's there. It's the thing that's making my face sag. I'm not liking that. I mean, I'm not all into youth or anything, but when I look in the mirror, I think, I look like my mom when she was 70. And so, I, I, that it's there. It's all the time. It's pulling us downward. And, and we live with it. Well, the, the force of lust in our flesh is just as present. And it is pulling at us all the time ceaselessly, relentlessly. It doesn't rest. It doesn't stop. It just goes on. In fact, if you'll come with me to the book of James, just a few pages back, the book of James, a few pages toward the front of the Bible, and you'll come to chapter 1, James actually addresses its pull. It's in chapter 1, Pick up in verse 13. Look at the pull that's here. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. In other words, that pull is not from the Father. That's why in 1 John he says, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. It's from your flesh. And so he says here, but uh, let, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away. Notice that word, carried away. It's, it's a pull that actually has the power to move you. It is a pull that has the power to move you in a particular direction toward a particular thing. It carries you away. It's strong. I love ants. I love watching ants. And I love the fact that ants can pick up between 7 and 10 times their weight and tote it. 
And so you can see an ant toting off something, and that ant looks very small, but it's carrying something so much bigger than itself. This little thing called lust is so powerful that it can pick you up and it can tote you somewhere that you do not want to go if you don't deal with it. It's that powerful. And so the Scripture teaches that it's a pull. And I want you to write off in big letters beside this. I want you to just write this phrase, I desire. Write it right beside number one, I desire. That desire is the pull. It is the thing that has the capability of carrying you away. James goes on to say, he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. So in other words, we cannot blame anything external to us for what we get carried away by. We can blame gravity for these wrinkles and these sags. We can blame it. But we cannot blame anyone but our own lusts for these things that carry us away. And so... The scripture teaches here that there's a pull. And that pull is working because of something. The pull is working because of what was called in theological terms in Genesis, it was called the fall. It was the entry of sin into our community and into our hearts. And that pull that I call the I desire of sin is there because of the absence of something. A particular kind of absence. A particular kind of emptiness. When we broke away from God, we were left with a particular kind of void. A particular kind of emptiness. A particular kind of desire to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, to be all of those things. We were left with that because we had estranged ourselves from the only one who really could ever satisfy us. And that's God. To loosely quote C.S. Lewis, he said to this effect, the reason that God cannot offer you happiness apart from himself is because it does not exist. The reason God cannot offer you happiness apart from himself is because it does not exist. And when we pursue any kind of happiness and fulfillment apart from God, the pursuit, the desire is called Lust. And it carries us places we thought we'd never go. I can't tell you the number of times I've sat down with individuals who've fallen into particular sins and said, I had no idea how far this would go when I started out. And so the pull is there. It's called the I desire, but it is the recognition of the absence of something. 
It is the absence of true satisfaction found in the introductory verse today. What is the introductory verse? Well, it's verse 15. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is the absence of something that leads to the pull. Not knowing of and rejoicing in, resting in, and celebrating the love of God for you will guarantee you to be finding your fulfillment in something other than God. And so that's the I desire, the lust of the flesh. The quest to fill the emptiness, the loneliness, the quest to fill that kind of isolation with something. Yesterday's paper had the story of a man who had gone on a gaming binge and played for three straight days without sleep and died from the activity. It's the second person reported in the last month. The other guy was on a five-day binge looking for something. Wanting it so bad that you would go sleeplessly after it for three days, five days, and expand your body to such a level that it finally just gives out. This particular kind of emptiness was the thing Jesus was addressing when he said that he was the door open for you to belong. He was the water that you would drink and never be thirsty. That He is the bread that you would eat and never be hungry. That He was the light that you would never be fearful of darkness. He was the life so that you would never fear death. He was the resurrection so that you would never fear eternity. He was the good shepherd so that you would never feel lack. Jesus presented Himself as an answer, a true answer, to what the lust seeks to answer falsely. But it doesn't stay there. The pull, the gravity, the I desire, finds itself in number two, the probe. I don't know if you keep up with science, but we sent a probe out into space many years ago called the Voyager 1. How many of you remember Voyager 1 going out? This is a big news story. You don't hear much about it anymore, but it's actually still there. It is right now 11.1 billion miles from the sun. I can't even figure that one out. I don't know where that locates something. 11.1 billion miles from the sun. They're still getting information from it. They sent it as a probe looking for something. And that's what the second part of verse 16 is about. Look at verse 16 again. You see the pull, the lust of the flesh. And then you see the probe, the lust of the eyes. You see, that's what your body does with your eyes. Your lustful body puts your eyes out on a mission looking for something. That's what the voyagers do. And in fact, we've sent, right now, we have 14 space probes on mission, looking at something right now, worldwide. That means worldwide, all the different countries. We have two that are on their way. We've got one that's going to go and check out Pluto. And I was looking at a, at a cartoon the other day of that, and it had the probe, had finally gotten to Pluto, and there was a guy standing there, a little alien guy, and the sign said, we are a planet. 
I thought that was great. But we send probes out because we want to find something. Your eyes are probing all the time to satisfy the desires of your flesh. They are the probes sent out into the realm around you to find. That's why advertising works. That's why people pay a million bucks to get 30 seconds of Super Bowl time. Because they know that your eyes are already looking. And they just want to be the answer to your search. They know your eyes are already probing, and they just want to be what you find. That's why the Jaguar commercial several years ago excellently presented itself as the way to fulfill the seven deadly sins. That this one car would take care of all seven urges just by one purchase. They knew that if they could put that in front of your eyes, that in the lust of your heart, your eyes would locate that beautiful car and say, there it is. You see, your eyes are the radar system for the lust of your flesh. And they're looking, but there's two kinds of eyes. There's external eyes that are surveying the environment, but there's internal eyes called the imagination. Another word is fantasy. Paul called it the eyes of our hearts. That there's a set of internal eyes and a set of external eyes, and what they're doing is they're looking around for something to satisfy the weary soul. They're looking around for something that will make the lust of the flesh finally be satisfied, finally be finished. So I want you to write off to the side, right by number two, I want you to write the word, words, I delight. Because we're going in a progression, and it's going to make sense here in a second. The lust says, I desire. The eyes locate something. They find what they're looking for. They look on something. They behold them like David when he saw Bathsheba. They lock on, and they say, target acquired. I've got to have that. Sometimes it's the internal eyes that do it through imagination and fantasy. Sometimes it's the external eyes that do it through actual location and visual conquest. But the desire that wells up out of the flesh sends out the probe through the eyes of the heart and the eyes of the body looking for the thing that will make one satisfied, make one happy, make one fulfilled, whatever word you want to use, and they locate that. Now here comes the challenge that mixes with so many of our lessons and especially with crisis of belief. Here's what happens. Very often when the target is acquired by the eyes of the heart or the eyes of the body and when we finally go, oh, oh there it is! Then it presents itself as a moral problem. Because we know that whatever thing we have just imagined or fantasized or whatever thing we've just seen and locked onto, we know that God has said, Thou shalt not. And we come to what is in a negative sense a crisis of belief. We get hung. Because our, our, our fantasy or our imagination has located something, someone, 
our eyes have located something, someone, we've locked on and we've said, I've got to have that. It can be anything from that new car smell to the smell of cologne or perfume. And we lock on it. And we say this, I delight in that. It will fill my desires. I delight in that. It will fulfill my desires. And we're locked in. And we come to a crisis of belief because as believers, I'm going to speak first as Christians, as believers, the Holy Spirit says, wrong answer. Your fulfillment is in Christ. But there's this moment of crisis of belief. Even for an unbeliever, the conscience and the things that are taught by natural law and the things that we've heard of the Ten Commandments say to us, that is wrong! And so we're at a crisis of belief. And this is the thing that God taught me sitting at my desk one day of how this plays together. This is how the next phrase is the most potent one. It is not the pull that is such danger. We live with it every day. It is not the probe that's such danger because we can accidentally visualize mentally or physically. Mm -mm, That's not the real issue here. The next phrase is what? What does it say? The boastful Pride of life. Here is the real power. And so number three, I think we could even say, since we've got pride in the underpart, we could even say for number three, we write the word, the power. Because the real power here is going to now be realized. We go from, I desire. Man, I got this thing in me that's just kind of longing. It kind of wants to be satisfied. It kind of desires. And so I desire. And then my eyes happen upon something either intentionally or unintentionally, or my imagination happens upon something either intentionally or unintentionally. And I lock in, target acquired. And then, either by God's Holy Spirit as a believer or just by God's divine revelation as an unbeliever, we hear the words, thou shalt not. And here's where the boastful pride of life comes in. Right beside number three, right These two words, I deserve. And here's where pride comes in. We boldly look at God and others and we say, but I deserve to be happy. But I deserve to be fulfilled. But I deserve this. You don't know how hard I've worked. You don't know how much I've suffered. You don't really understand what I've been through. I deserve to be happy even though the alarms are going off and God is saying, no! Even though natural law is saying, no! It hurts others. Even though the commands scream, no! We say, I don't care what natural law or God's commands or God's Spirit says. I deserve pride. I deserve to be happy. So I'm going to do this anyway. That's where pride becomes the power. And we use pride to justify our sins. Whether it's illicit purchases, 
of things we should not own, illicit pursuits of people we should not be pursuing, illicit encounters, whether they're on video or in person, illicit monetary gain. God says no. And we say, I don't care. And here's what happens. And if you would not mind writing this down, it would help me for you to have this point of reference later. I think it'll be important. Number three says this. If you write this down, I deserve for my flesh, I deserve for my flesh to be gratified more than for God to be glorified. This is what we say. I deserve for my flesh to be gratified more than for God to be glorified. That is pride. And that is the crisis of belief where we come to a place where there's two roads diverging. We know that God's calling us down one road of righteousness, holiness, salvation, purity, godliness, but we say to God, this other path will leave me more fulfilled. David said that with Bathsheba. We've said it on countless occasions over small, minuscule things and huge, massive things. But here's the issue. And I want to track back now to the preceding verse and we'll close with it. Look in verse 15. What John does is he gives us the remedy before he gives us the problem. And if we read too quickly, we'll blow that off and miss it. What is it? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is that saying? He's saying this. The remedy for the power of the pull the remedy for the pleasure of the probe. The remedy for this incredible justification of self with pride is not pulling up your bootstraps and being a better Christian. It's not toughening it, manning up, or womaning up. It's none of that. It is for you to know that you are loved by God to an infinite degree. And that He would never leave you or forsake you. And that He ultimately will completely fulfill far beyond any dream that you've ever had. That He will give you such joy in Him, such pleasure in Him, such gratification in Him, that the things of this world will seem to have been passing, fading memories in light of His glorious love. But I want to warn you, it is not just you that is being affected 
by this. When you fall into the realm of I desire and its pull, and you send out your probe, and you say, I delight in that thing, and then you come along and you say, but, I know it's wrong, but I deserve. I want to take you to one passage, and I want to close with it. It's in 2 Timothy. It's Paul's last letter. It's his last chapter in his last letter. And it's his last charge in his last chapter of his last letter to say something very, very potent. Because he gives an example here of what I'm talking about and its ramifications. Here's the apostle, God's apostle, filling the place, the role of the 12th apostle. The apostle to the Gentiles. Here he is, he comes in, he gives us nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. God uses him in a mighty and powerful way. God brings along his way some servants. But in verse 9 of chapter 4, he says something. And I want this not to be how we finish. Because here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that many of us will have started and maybe started wrongly. Maybe with a love of church in us, and maybe with a love of people in us, or maybe with a love of religion in us, but not with the love of God in us through Christ. And we may come up short like this man. Verse 9, Paul says to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Paul is in prison. He knows he's about to die. He says, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. My brothers and sisters, this desire and this delight and this thinking that you deserve will not just harm you. There's somebody that you are vital to. I don't know who they are. And your actions and your behavior are vital to their well-being. And if you abandon your post because you have loved the world because the love of the Father is not in you. Somebody will be left without. And so I want to appeal to you, to your conscience, to your understanding of God. I want to appeal to you in this. The only remedy for the power of the pull, the pleasure of the probe, and the profound interference of pride is for you to know this. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world but that through Him the world might be saved. Would you bow with me?